It's been a while, but the Oscar Race Checkpoint comes to you once again from Mike, Mike, and Oscar. I am your co-host, Mike One. Co-host also, Mike, in a moment as we have a huge story that we need to catch you and, frankly, ourselves up on that just kind of unraveled going into this past weekend, Michael. Yeah, I think we were banking on more news hitting, and I didn't feel like I understood it well enough, but we took the Mm. weekend, we kind of dove into it, we crunched some numbers, so I think we'll speak on it more intelligently today which starting from the dumbass quotient that we usually begin these on <laughs> i don't know how smart it's going to be but we do have a lot say, of we stuff. will speak we will speak on it that's for sure we will i speak. don't know about the adjectives we have a lot of stuff to say so there it is <laughs> uh yes this is the oscar race checkpoint this is your weekly look around or at least uh, we like to call it weekly even though it happens every once in a while sometimes but your usual look around all things oscars and awards season centric if you're looking for the more bigger general blockbuster news we have another new show that we like to do uh, somewhat weekly as well called mike mike and oscar weekly this lead story that we're covering in this orc affects both of those news shows because we have to talk about the big deal that went down between universal studios and amc theaters stop me if you've heard this before but those two sides came together to hash out what is really quite a landmark deal between the two of them and kudos to you mike one because you predicted this happening essentially and you predicted at the very beginning of the pandemic that it's only four months too late but they finally got there they finally did get there Uh, look i and we both just scoured all of the trades over the past five or six days uh hollywood reporter deadline hollywood variety indie wire with tom bruggeman and you know we'll mention a few articles right up top the first of which comes from pamela mcclintock of thr mm-hmm. but a lot of great work done over the weekend and our you know our uh, hats go off to people so basically mike in a multi-year deal with amc universal who also owns focus features they now may release films on premium VOD 17 days after premiering in AMC cinemas. This is three weekends of movie theater play as a minimum before PVOD. The window used to be 90 days. Of course, we all recognize that Netflix negotiated a 45-day window with cinemas previously. AMC excluded, because AMC has never played Netflix movies (laughs) based on their adherence to these windows. Now, seems so unlike them, yeah. AMC is the largest cinema chain in the United States and the world. They will share in the PVOD revenue uh, in some way. Uh, Though the terms of that deal are undisclosed, THR sources say that AMC may receive 10% of each PVOD rental. Michael, your thoughts? Uh, Yeah, that number has been bouncing around is my first thought because THR said 10%. Then Pete D'Alessandro of Deadline came out and cited that it's north of 20%. So I think there's a IndieWire also cited the D'Alessandro numbers. So I don't think anyone knows much about this deal in general. And that's my first thought. We don't know. It's a multi-year deal between AMC and and, and Universal. We don't know what multi-year means. We don't know what the numbers really are. There's a lot about this deal that we don't know uh, on the basis of it. I don't know how I feel about it. We were talking. (laughs) talking about this before the show started. I've never understood the leverage AMC seems to think they have in all these business dealings. Because if you look at the numbers, yes, they're the big fish in the theatrical pond. They have something like 8,000 screens, and you cited 1,000 theater cha- the, uh, individual theaters, I think, just nationwide. Is that right? So it's 1,006 theaters worldwide. worldwide. And it's 11,000, okay. almost 11,100 screens worldwide. worldwide. Just to uh, put that into context real quick, Mike. Yeah. Basically, there's 200,000 screens worldwide. Worldwide, I did a lot of Google searches, and I think that's the number, about, thereabouts. Now, the total of U.S. movie theaters is about, you know, 40,500 these days, almost 41,000 if you add drive-in. So basically, you know, AMC, you're going to say, is around 20, 25% yeah. of the domestic movie-going earnings report. Yeah. Worldwide, it's even less. 
And overall, in terms of the screen count, it's about almost 6% of the total screen count. So again, I agree with you. What leverage do they ultimately have if everybody goes against them here? And I've never, again, I've never understood that. And even when AMC was playing hardball with Universal, when we had a breaking news about this three months ago, when Universal put Trolls World Tour on PVOD, and AMC came out and they said, that's it, we're never showing a Universal movie in our property again. It never made sense to me, because my thought was always, if Universal wanted to, they could just circumvent AMC altogether. There's enough screens out there between, they could play nice with Regal, they could play nice with Cinemark, all these other chains. And basically, if Universal had a a uh, desirable enough property they could be the ones that turn it on amc i don't understand what leverage amc thinks they're playing with other than the leverage that studios need theaters for blockbuster still because that's where the most money is made so this is a really bizarre deal to me at least on the outset i kind of understand the highs and lows but we can get more into it what about you mike well here's what gives me a lot of pause everybody covering this story seems to think that it's going to shake up the entire industry and ultimately speed up the demise of movie theaters or change the habits of movie going for the <laughs> wait, long wait, wait wait every innovation anymore is going to end movie theaters okay so that's I, just that's the baseline right i hope you're right i hope you're right <laughs> <laughs> to say that everybody's alarmist in that regard but look i think if the rest of nato and that's just talking about what's happening here in america but of course the rest of the world i mean if the other movie theater chains don't go along with this where does that leave amc right. where does that leave universal films does everybody put the screws to amc and say hey we're not giving you your our studios movies like if disney says to amc guess what 40 percent of the gross on the year. The Disney movies have been, you know, allocating for 40% of movie theater grosses over the past right. uh, couple years, Mike. If they hold out on AMC, AMC is going to be left with Universal Films and maybe they'll strike a deal with Netflix finally, ironically, right? So AMC is going to be totally out of business in that regard. So this deal will be null and void or they'll be screwed. We don't know if there are any outs for AMC in this deal. And likewise, for Universal, you could take the other side of the coin and say if all the other theater chains say we're not playing Universal movies until they go back on this deal or, or you know rip up this deal. What's the motivation for a Disney to join this deal? Disney came out in terms of the fallout, and they said that they're very right. dismissive of the idea. They don't think a $20 PVOD uh, rental as a cheaper movie family night it comes close to what would be spent on their product You know, for a 90-day window. It seems like a lot of movie theaters see no business sense from Cineworld to the European exhibitors uh, in this article from Variety by Brent Lang, Rebecca Rubin, and Minori Ravidron. Just one person after another, they quote, saying, this deal makes no sense. We're not going to sign it. We're never going to sign it. Forget you. It's not happening. And then there's also you know, rumors that AMC and that Universal are trying to, you know, negotiate with other people and the numbers are way above oh the my first God. deal from Universal. It's basically saying that first come, first serve was a better deal. <laughs> that has to be, for AMC's hope, or part, that, I, that has to be posturing. I pray that's posturing. Not it's that I've it. ever agreed with anything AMC has done in this quarantine anyway, but like, to, to go and, and give the best deal, they said we're not going to give, Universal got the best deal th that we're going to cut because Universal came to us first, so everyone else is going to have a worse deal. So if we're taking 20% of Universal's early PVOD take, that means we're going to look for 25% or 30% of if Disney wants to come into action. Are you kidding me? Why, why, why would Disney do that and logistically and we talked about this already but logistically um, this isn't breaking any news it makes sense for universal to enter into something like this at least logistically because universal is under the same comcast umbrella as obviously the comcast cable network so if universal puts one of their titles on their cable network early they keep 100 percent of that revenue if you have something like warner brothers or disney someone with their own in-house streaming network that has to license their movie out to a different cable network just to get it on pvod early then you're losing 20 to 25 percent of the pvod revenue uh to amc as a basis of this deal if that studio was to join you're going to lose 
I don't know how much in terms of to the cable network just to get your title on them. I know the cable network would pay them, but that's still that's money that the cable network would keep every time that movie is purchased on that cable network. So that's revenue you're not getting in-house. Why wouldn't Disney or Warner or anyone who has their own in-house streaming service say, keep your numbers, you know, keep keep the movie in AMC theaters for 90 days. We'll do the regular window. When that's up, we're just going to take it and put it on our own streaming networks and maybe we can get more subs that way. So there's a lot of wild cards involved here, and you mentioned the biggest one. How much money did these PVOD movies actually make for Universal and ergo Comcast, the second largest broadcasting and cable TV company in the world, the largest paid TV company, etc.? I can go on and on with their stats. Mm -hmm. Basically, if the king of Staten Island made way more money than it ever would have in theaters and they're just withholding those numbers but they're giving those numbers to the studios this framework to this deal may make a lot more sense to the movie studios however the other major wild card in this is the pandemic like these may be pandemic bloated numbers and look i even you know the biggest alarmists like the one i'm talking to right now may (laughs) say that we'll never have a new normal and that you know the world is over. But when you say alarmish, you mean correct? I think that <laughs> post-pandemic, when we do finally get back to normal, yes, the theater-going business domestically has gone down in terms of viewership in the United States. It's gone up, way the hell up, the world over. Did world movie-watching habits change to the point, you know, during this pandemic that watch at home? has been ramped up the same way it has in the United States? Has that been accelerated? Has that effect been accelerated overseas for the rest of the world the way it's been done in in America? I don't know, but what I do know is movie going, movie theater going, accounted for $42.5 billion worldwide in 2019. I don't care what a hundred million dollar number you throw at me from Universal or how even if it made even if they made five hundred million overall, like it doesn't add up. These macro numbers to me don't add up at all. Even if you account for the Netflix numbers, which are huge, and you have to reckon with Extraction had the viewership of a global blockbuster, right. worldwide numbers from Netflix. So that was that was eye opening. That was eye opening to me when Andrew and I went over that. That being said, that is not an a la carte purchase. So what is Netflix really making from that particular movie? So this doesn't make sense for a Fast and Furious 9. This doesn't make sense for a Jurassic World. And let's be honest, AMC and Universal don't have to follow this strategy for those movies. They may follow it for Candyman, which is the next major Universal release. They may follow it for a couple focus features that are coming out this fall, again, during the pandemic and during these rough times. And maybe that'll work out for Universal and will help AMC make some kind of profit while it's, you know, floundering and on the verge of bankruptcy. Yeah, AMC is so over leveraged with their creditors right now just to survive that that's kind of where I thought this deal might get made at the beginning of the pandemic for pandemic movies that go on PVOD like The King of Staten Island, like Trolls World Tour. The idea that some money right now is better than no money Uh, as far as blockbusters going for this into the D'Alessandros of the world and the Revengerons of the world, they all cite that. This isn't made for blockbusters, and I think the idea is that this deal isn't going to affect blockbusters, and it shouldn't, because blockbusters are where both sides, studio and theaters, make their most money, and if, you know, a Frozen or a Frozen 2, which in its fourth week and is still pulling in 20-plus million dollars, that's not going to be touched, and that's not the type of movie that they're going to put on PVOD uh, after 17 days. What I think this could help, mm-hmm. or the type of movie that I think this could greatest impact or at least get more money or found money on both sides is something like maybe a post-hype blockbuster that's a little bit of a flop something like suicide squad which still did i think like 750 million worldwide with 300 and some odd million domestically 325 million domestically which only did 12 million dollars in its fourth weekend if you put that on pvod after weekend number three or four which it could be seen as a surprise or a little gift maybe there's people out there casual movie going fans who are so enraptured and in love with the preview that don't keep up with the day-to-day machinations of what's 
hot and what's not in the industry, and they say Suicide Squad came on PVOD early, maybe you can milk a few extra dollars out of something like that. I also think this could help. The other type of movie I think this does help is Oscar contenders, uh, little scene Oscar contenders, something like Ford v. Ferrari, uh, which I have the number here. It ended up pulling in $6.655 million in its fourth weekend in theaters. Well, that's an okay number. That's not a great number, but if you put that on PVOD after 17 days, maybe you get more eyes on that. Maybe that helps the Oscar campaign and the word of mouth. Now, are those two things enough to justify this deal and enough to justify money being pulled in for both sides? Maybe for the studio side, I guess for AMC side in the turn, and if you go in with the thinking that some money is better than no money, I struggle to think what t- other type of film this is going to help both sides on. So you got to crunch a lot of numbers, and we don't have those numbers to crunch in order to figure this thing out. I agree with you in theory that this new strategy, that this shorter window can help certain movies. And I can see why you'd say like failing blockbusters could kind of recoup stuff faster because they're on the heels of the marketing campaign. Right. They don't have to essentially do two marketing campaigns. And that, but that's the other thing. This is going to help that marketing campaign in that way. You, you're going to save money on the far back end in terms of having to push out a marketing campaign for a Blu-ray or a VOD purchase or anything like that. All that being said, I do think movie watchers the world over are attracted to quality in the long run and you can ruin your brand you can ruin that experience by giving them a bunch of stinkers like if all they get is a bunch of big blockbuster failures on pvod this early people are going to recoil from that practice later on it's not going to work the same way it doesn't work in theaters because we are so adherent to the tomato meter most moviegoers are in terms of the tomato meter. I mean, the tomato meter score comes up on the bottom of almost every site marketing the film, almost, you know, Fandango. You could see yeah. the tomato meter score. So I'm I'm not entirely sure how much that matters. And I just think there's so many variables in this to where, yeah, maybe the farewell with some Oscar buzz or some Golden Globe buzz would have made more than the $20 million it made in theaters last year if it was available to everybody on PVOD during all that buzz when that was happening. Mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure that works, though. I'm not entirely sure that this model can work overall. And let's be honest, if AMC is expecting the same three-week gross that it gets on a 90-day window with a 17-day window... I mean, if they make it known that a movie is only going to be in their theaters for 17 days, if they ever make that known, then I would expect regular people, casual movie fans, to completely ignore that movie in theaters and just wait the three weeks and then watch it. Yeah, that's the other part of this, is is how is it going to change marketing and what's what are the machinations that come with that are you going to have to announce is this going to be like how the nfl handles their sunday night schedule are you going to be able to flex a movie and just decide during its actual theatrical run whether or not you can pull it after 17 days or is this something you're going to have to make a deal with the studio based on a pre-debut buzz that this is okay we're only doing this for 17 days then it's going on on uh vod and blah 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 i don't what does that mean and what is that like? And if you do announce it beforehand, then yes, of course, I would agree with you. There's going to be people that are like, I'm just going to wait three days or three weeks and I'll sit in my couch in my home and watch this by myself with for 20 bucks. So, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a variable that has to be discussed. There's so many variables that have to be discussed. You were talking about another one before we hit record here. And, and it goes back to what does multi-year mean? Is this a two-year deal? Is this a trial run? Or is this like a five-year, six-year deal where both these sides are married to each other now and they have to get other theater chains and other studios into this deal to make it viable for both sides because if it's a longer term deal then there's something they know that we don't there's something in there they figured something out that either it's a big hope which i can't imagine universal would gamble that much i can understand why amc might because amc seems to need to hit big on a big gamble just to survive but anyway there's there's got to be something where if it's a longer term deal between the two sides they know they can get momentum behind it if it's a shorter term deal it could mean life or death for amc where it could just be uh you know why not try this for universal i wonder if this is a slow erosion 
of the power of movie theaters and you know a slow gradual gain gain again for the watch at home audiences and again movie theaters would go by the way of live music eventually or it would be a more of a specialty option a special night out i still say that studios have to look at the basic numbers like if you pay a la carte per ticket and you have a family of five paying $15 a ticket to go see Trolls World Tour in theaters, you know, forget about the concessions because that's all movie theater profits, right? But they're still making, you know, 50, 60 bucks or whatever. I can't do math today. 75 to 100 (laughs) bucks on the tickets alone, right? That's more than you're making with, you know, 20% of a $20 or or 80% rather with of a $20 purchase at home, you know, where the entire family can watch it. And you're never going to convince me that they're going to make more money with the lower price on watch at home, which also probably eats into their video sales. That second window, that third window, it eats into those earnings most yeah, likely. Yeah, for sure. Because, for sure. yeah, there's, there's notoriety and there's novelty to seeing a movie earlier. But, again, I don't – you know, if you saw T- Trolls World Tour for 20 bucks, and you're a casual fan of it, you're probably not going to buy it on Blu-ray. Maybe Trolls World Tour is a bad example, but am I looking to buy The King of Staten Island on Blu-ray, having seen it for 20 bucks on PVOD? I'm not, and I'm yeah, a huge it's a, fan. It's a big ass to double dip into your wallet 20 bucks at a time for that type of, of film. I agree. I also think you hit on something that this is going to most impact negatively. Second-run theaters are going to get killed by this. Well, that's the big question, because a lot of independently run theaters put out the indie films. They put out the smaller releases. They don't all get the blockbusters. So if all of these movies are available on PVOD, the indie theater slate just is gone. It's The exclusivity of that slate is gone for them. The, the the novelty theaters just in this part of the country that I've seen and that I know, they struggle to survive as is. Right. I mean, I, I know they're not, at least the ones I know of, they're not doing well. Uh, and some, a lot of them have closed, the ones that I, that I know of anyway. But I don't understand how a second-run theater survives at all. You talk about independently-run theaters. W- what is the point of NATO? I mean, I guess you could ask that about a global global scale, but also about theaters. What is the point of NATO? NATO has come out against this, you know, a couple different times. So who knows? Maybe they're coming out against it just for posturing, and they're making deals behind the scenes. With Mike, if you and I ran my Podunk Theater in my hometown, right? Mm-hmm. Would we not be furious about this? Because we can't look out for ourselves in this pandemic because we don't have the means, at least business-wise. If we, if we run one theater, we have to rely on the largesse. If we're in a freaking guild and a union, we have to rely on the largesse and the looking out of the biggest guy in our union. And I read some articles that said that there were uh, theaters who were furious at Universal. That can't be true. I mean, there's got to be people that are just outraged, that own independent theaters that are outraged at AMC for doing this because they're supposed to be in a union where they're all for one, and AMC cut this deal in their own self-interest. This isn't about the theatrical experience. This is about AMC's theatrical experience and keeping AMC alive. It's not about theaters. So ultimately, at the end of the day, if this is a minor practice between AMC and Universal and... It's a slow erosion of movie theaters. I might get, I might understand it more. And if and if Universal is not going to put any of their blockbusters or any of their more profitable films in terms of the macro numbers, you know, on PVOD within this window, then again, it, it might just be this slow erosion. And every movie theater might see the viability of this plan for films that aren't superhero movie laden or blockbuster laden. And it might, you know work for another one of your predictions basically saying that what we're going to be left with in movie theaters is the big budget movies and that's it. I still think that. I think that's where this is all heading. This only further to to me uh, puts that in stone honestly. I could see that working but none of it works if AMC gets blackballed or Universal gets blackballed because of this deal. Now there's a long ramp. There's a long runway for movie theaters and movie studios to take a look at this and see if it works because worldwide movie theaters aren't necessarily reopening in mass. You have the tenant story that we're going to get into in a minute here where even a movie that big is only going to open piecemeal. It's going to open gradually 
And, t- and it's the opposite of this story, Mike, because those windows, th- that that window is now, you know, unending. You know, tenant, Giant, yeah. Tenant may be out in theaters and being seen in theaters for like three months. It might be like an old school kind of release. It might be like The Godfather used to be or Star Wars playing for, for four and five months. It won't be a year like those movies used to be profitable. And that's, for, that's but, a perfect example, not to cut you off, but that's no. a perfect example of the type of movie WB could have it out in theaters for forever, and that's still going to get some people to, I think, buy HBO Max if that's where they put the movie at in the streaming service. It's certainly going to make money on on VOD whenever it goes there after it's done with its theatrical run. I I don't understand, and I know we're just two guys speaking into microphones in Connecticut right now, but I don't understand where this works out best for both sides if it's just these two properties and they don't get other help from everyone else. I guess my thesis statement at the end of the day is what does the rest of NATO do? What does the rest of the world cinemas do? What do the rest of the movie studios, the majors do? What if, the fuck is the point of NATO? What is the point of NATO if, if they, one of their entities yeah. are going to go off on their own and they're self and acting their own self-interest to this extent? If they this kick, doesn't help any other theater. Mike, if they kick AMC out of NATO, what happens? Do they doom themselves and AMC? Yeah, then maybe. That might be what they're thinking. Like, we can't allow 25% of the business to just fail. Like, we, we have to... Did AMC just actually make a nice chess move there? Because they realize that movie theaters are struggling as it is, so the 80%... Like, movie studios have been wanting to do this forever. Is that, a, you know, the worst-held secret in the world? Is it not just true for Universal? I don't know. I think the, the tough talk coming out of the, uh, studios like Disney, though, makes me pause. It makes me say that, all right, maybe if the rest of the movie studios don't fall in line with this, they don't try this at all, they may hold the screws to Universal, and they may hold the screws to AMC at the end of the day. Well, where it counts and where all this matters is in people's wallets and in money. And I can tell you how Wall Street reacted to this news uh, when it happened. They weren't completely sold. This is going to be a money-making venture, at least on the business side, because uh, when the deal was first announced on Thursday, the stock did go up. And since then, it has pretty much gone down consistently. It's now trading. I mean, AMC has always been, at least for the last couple months it's been around four or five dollars it's now trading as we talk right now uh three dollars and 93 cents a share so at least from the practically purely business side they don't think this is going to be a huge uh endeavor to have a lot of people excited and make a lot of money on the the front end at least in the immediate future i would say as far as amc making undercover chess moves there was another one of those that popped into my head when i was doing research and reading about this and thinking about this AMC has been very resistant to Netflix films and showing Netflix films at all in their theaters. Mm-hmm. At least now with this extremely shortened window, obviously Netflix wanted the 45-day window like you talked about. Now it's a 17-day window for some properties. Now AMC has no excuse not to show Netflix movies in their theaters, right? Right, absolutely right. And they may have have no choice, Mike, at the end of the day. Every and, other movie studio may say, you can't have our films, F you. And you, now they're stuck with Netflix movies and right. they're stuck with Universal. And Netflix could have an appealing late fall, late winter slate where nobody else does. Like if AMC has to show Mank or AMC has to show Hillbilly Elegy, Elegy, Elegy. But is whatever. Netflix going <laughs> to cut a deal with AMC saying you get X amount from our subscriptions? Hell no. No, absolutely not. It's going to be a purely licensing deal, I would think. All right. Well, we kind of went over the tenant story within the AMC story. Mike, do you have any more on AMC here or are we getting into Netflix? Well, all I want to do is shout out. You shouted out some great names. I want to shout out the great work of the Washington Post was on top of this. IndieWire was on top of this, as well as, obviously, the Hollywood Reporter, Deadline, Pete D'Alessandro, all these names that we already mentioned. But I'm very, very overly impressed uh, as somebody who follows sports like a nut and follows politics like a nut and follows uh, the stock market just recently. I'm very overly impressed with the quality of reporting that this section of this business has. Mm-hmm. Uh, the box office, the movie business section. I'm very, very impressed with the reporting and the uh, authenticity and the elaboration to make it clear to idiots like me who read them <laughs> uh, that make it easy to follow. So I, I just want to shout out all of them for their great work and thank you. Yeah, I echo that sentiment. And now, thankfully, we actually have some upcoming movies to talk about. We're going to talk about (laughs) Netflix's award slate. We're going to talk about the Venice and TIFF selections to end the show here. So a lot of forward-looking, a lot of happiness, I think, going forward. 
yes, the movie industry may be doomed, but we still got a year. <laughs> but until then. Yeah, movie watching to, to, to celebrate here. All right, so the net, big Netflix story was that Rebecca uh, featuring Army Hammer, Lily James from director Ben Wheatley. That is coming to Netflix in October, Michael. And now their October slate will include Mank from David Fincher with Gary Oldman there. And... Uh, Amanda Seyfried. We have The Trial of the Chicago 7 that they bought and Rebecca. So Netflix's fall slate is looking like this. In September, they have um, Thinking of Ending Things with Charlie Kaufman and The Devil All the Time with Tom Holland and every young actor in Hollywood that Andrew and I (laughs) talked about. And in November, they have Hillbilly Elegy. So number one, let's just talk about September, October, November. What do you think of that slate? I don't think it's going to stay. I mean, I understand they announced this, but I, I, I wonder how much of this was in play with the original Oscar schedule and if they're going to make any kind of adjustments because Netflix is so loaded, right? These are all perennial contending movies, I would think. And they we know Netflix cares deeply about the awards, and they're the only game in town right now, at least for the next, what, three to four to five months, six months, eternity, however long this pandemic goes, depending on the leaders that are... Anyway, uh, <laughs> so... They have a stronger schedule than any other studio right now. If they're playing for Oscars, I would think they'd move one of these, wouldn't they? All right, so that was my initial thought, and I've been on the record with it with Andrew on two occasions, right? Yes. So the two things are starting to change my mind, other than Andrew. But thing number one is that they have at least five more award season hopefuls for the rest of 2020. They have Ma Rainey, Rainey's Black Bottom, mm-hmm. The Midnight Sky, a George Clooney movie, The Boys in the Band, and The Prom. They have Over the Moon, and that's not even counting the quote-unquote 2021 movies that they may have or future acquisitions like Apollo 10 and a Half from Richard Linklater, Bombay Rose Blonde with Anna Diarmas as Marilyn Monroe. Loaded. So Absolutely loaded. they have a huge award slate this year. That's thing number one. So they could potentially have three awards movies each month to give each one of these movies a long runway to build buzz of that campaign, right? They have enough. They have enough to put out there, even if they go into February, because I'm sure we don't know everything that's on their slate. Dick Johnson is dead. It's going to be a that was a Sundance hit. That was a the documentary that's supposed to contend for stuff. So that's number one. Number two is that they are eschewing, I think that's the right word, they're <laughs> ignoring the film festivals. And they're basically saying this year that instead of premiering our movies at film festivals and let them build critical buzz that way, we're just going to premiere these movies on our streaming service at different times in the calendar. Let the awards campaign, the traditional campaigns, be damned in terms of the time frame usually mm. when. And in this quarantine coronavirus year they're just saying we're going to gradually roll out all these movies and let them build buzz organically from the public on up through the critics is netflix interested in the amc universal world are they interested in getting a foothold in theaters since they are the only game in town and they can be shown on the biggest theater chain nationwide and now I imagine AMC is going to try to make play nice with Netflix at some point. I really do think that's going to happen. Whether or not Netflix wants to go for it is a different answer. But I, I, do you think Netflix cares about being shown in theaters or in a chain like AMC? Or do you think they're watching all of that happen and just laughing from afar and they're just going to stick to streaming and putting these in their own theaters that they bought? I, at the end of the day, I think Netflix wants to have uh, the streaming service work out for itself. I mean, they're making $5 billion a year. You know, going back to 2019, those numbers I went over with Andrew a couple weeks ago. So they are trying to have content that ultimately rivals the libraries of all these long-running studios that are going to go to war with them in these streaming wars. Once they're picked for spare parts and they no longer show any WB movies or any Disney movies, they still got these long-standing deals with all this backlog content for them. That's not going to last, ultimately, unless these other streaming services fall by the wayside and they can recoup them. So basically, Netflix is saying, and this is one of the reasons why I think you and I talked off mic on this about their stocks going down, dipping down a little bit because you know stock, the stock market wasn't assured that Netflix had the content in reserve. Well, they've been going on this massive content buy for the last few years, so I think they're looking at the viability of their streaming service first and foremost. They don't care that Marriage Story might have made 
you know, $30 million on a $10 million budget. They don't care that they could play that game with uh, the Irishman in movie theaters and see if it, right. you know, makes back some of the money and use the same 90-day window format for their streaming service. They would rather have their streaming service have a crown jewel in terms of buzz and get more subscriptions, and it's worked for them. They have <laughs> $20 billion worth of subscriptions last year. My God. Yeah. Uh, we haven't even talked on Mike. You're right. I mean that the, about the the stock price and what I believe is going to be. A, I, I still firmly believe there's going to be a major purchase made by Netflix just because the reason their stock went down and and the people were you know, the shareholders were kind of going up in arms uh, two weeks ago. I think it was at this point was that uh, there's concern over the future and there's concern about what Netflix has on the horizon. What they have on the horizon. Obviously, for a show like Oscar Race Checkpoint is loaded. Mm-hmm. What they have on the horizon, generally, I think there is reason to be concerned about. I don't know that they have a a movie upcoming that's going to be huge in the zeitgeist that can grasp everything going forward. Uh, and I think that's where the concern is. I think that's where the concern was reflected in the share price as well. Uh, yada, yada, yada. So I do think there is still going to be some kind of acquisition or announcement, at least, coming for Netflix where they're going to grab hold of the zeitgeist for the casual movie going fan uh once again i i i firmly believe that um as far as their awards caliber slate Mm -hmm. if 2020 wasn't weird enough i mean i don't think we've had a year where one studio has all the chips (laughs) like we have with netflix i mean what competition is there for netflix for any of the major categories right now with this slate coming up like onward and like king of staten island so they're they're looking to dominate with this slate versus the rest of the slates. Like it's no comparison. We wanted to do a show a while back of the Netflix slate versus the Universal slate and, and kind of compare and contrast who had the, uh, the most powerful Oscar hopeful chances, etc. And now I'm glad we didn't do that show because everybody moved their stuff right. to 2021 <laughs> beyond the Oscar deadline, so that a lot of the movie uh, movies that we thought were going to contend have been moved off the slate. That being said said you know the films we did know about at film festivals and we're going to go into tiff in a minute here in venice you know a lot of them are playing a elongated festival circuit from sundance like the father for instance it played sundance now it's going to play in a fall film festival right we didn't discover another 20 of those films with huge directors and huge profiles this year we're going to look at two slates right now where we're going to be happy with them, but it, does the Venice their slate, niche? Yeah. Does the Venice yeah. slate compare compare to Netflix's in no. terms of notoriety? Does the TIFF? I mean, that's right. it, insane to think. Think about Netflix's slate last year, as good as it was with the Irishman, Marriage Story, etc., and compare that to every big movie that went to TIFF. TIFF yeah. dwarfed it in terms of notoriety profile, Absolutely. everything, and it, and it proved true at the end of the day. Even Venice, which only, you know, selects, you know, X number of films, which is not that many, it had Joker, it had a bunch of, you know, high-profile movies, and, you know, again, it also had the Netflix movies. So you compare and contrast, Venice probably gets the edge in terms of, you know, how popular its slate was with awards or with box office. So Well, Venice was very smart last year in putting all their chips in the Joker basket as well, and it made them a right. lot of noise. And there's not that movie out there this year. I mean, Tenant is the closest thing, but Tenant right now, I think people are getting Tenant fatigue, quite frankly, with how much that movie has been playing games with the movie-going audience. But there are silver linings, though, Mike. So let's let's get into the Venice and TIFF lineups because... Venice. We're finally happy with the folks over at Venice. They have headline titles from female filmmakers and some big name ones. Finally, Chloe Zhao's Nomadland with Frances McDormand is the big headliner. They just got today Regina King's directorial debut that was previously unannounced for TIFF. One Night in Miami starring Leslie Oldham and Aldous Hodge. It's about Malcolm X, Jim Brown, Muhammad Ali, and all these like elite athletes and, and celebrities back when they're on the town for that one night in Miami. Uh, it was Yo, just imagine purchased. being a fly on the wall for oh that conversation. Well, <laughs> that's what you want to make a movie about, right? Yeah, Amazon absolutely. Studios. 
Amazon Studios purchased it, uh, but they also got a bunch of international features. The World to Come from Mona Fassvold. She has a Casey Affleck, Vanessa Kirby movie. Mike, you got a couple more here. We have Lovers from Nicole Garcia of France. We have Pieces of a Woman with Shia LaBeouf and Sarah Snook. Sofia Coppola's On the Rocks. That's rumored to be playing there. We've talked about that and previewed that a bunch. That stars Bill Murray, Rashida Jones, and Jenny Slate. And Gia Coppola's next film is confirmed for Venice Mainstream. That stars Andrew Garfield, Maya Hawke, and Jason Schwartzman. Uh, so that's what we wanted to highlight. We've given Venice a lot of crap in the past uh, for their treatment of female filmmakers and their approach to highlighting female-helmed films. And uh, I guess this is a major course correction when you consider the type of year 2020's been and the hardship it's been to have not only a festival at all, but a lineup for a festival going forward. So they deserve many major props and recognition. And it's uh, an incredible silver lining to the fall film festivals if yeah. the names of these film female filmmakers if their profiles are raised that's a major silver lining we have uh venice also announcing this morning that they're going to show a 30 minute pedro Almodovar film this first english language film the human voice with tilda swinton and they're also going to exhibit some high profile documentaries mike with luca guadagnino's salvatore shoemaker of dreams and alex gibney's next film crazy non-insane mike i know you're a fan of alex gibney but are you mm -hmm. watching a movie about a shoemaker of dreams <laughs> I feel like you're trolling me right now. <laughs> well, I've always been the guy that's been, you know, converted to high fashion. And yes. you have not jumped on that train yet. Currently wearing a white T-shirt and Under Armour shorts as we record this. Yes. <laughs> so no is what you're saying. Look, no. maybe because it's Luca Guadagnino and I have a great respect for him, I'll take that in at some point in the future. But uh, what I do, in all seriousness... For as crazy as 2021 has to be because of what's happened this year, and The Hollywood Reporter just had a pretty decent article going into how difficult scheduling is becoming for studios, major studios in 2021, which I think everyone should read because there's everything's just been pushed. This is a respectable lineup for this type of pandemic year. More than respectable, I would say. So Venice deserves some high praise. I hope so. Is it comparable to last year's lineup in terms of notoriety and profile, like I said, compared to next Netflix's slate? No, but that being right. said, is it as good as? It might be better. Right. I mean, we might have these filmmakers become household names going forward, and they, these might be all sneaky, tremendous picks because female filmmakers have been ignored for so many years by the industry, and this could be an opportunity seized uh, in this particular case. So that, I guess that's what we're rooting for here. Mike, well, let's start down the road with the TIFF selections. Yeah, so we'll start with the crossover titles. These are Venice titles that are confirmed to be playing at TIFF. We have Nomadland as well, Pieces of a Woman, Regina King's One Night in Miami, like Mike just talked about with Leslie Odom and Aldous Hodge. Yeah, we have a bunch of can crossovers coming to TIFF as well. Another round about drunks featuring Mads Mickelson. We have Ammonite about... Horny, horny. Give it to a mic. Archaeologists <laughs> hunting for fossils. Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan. It, it makes me laugh every time. I'm sure it's a beautiful movie. It does make me laugh, kind of. We have Falling, which there's an old man screaming at Viggo Mortensen and the, the one still from it. And it's Viggo Mortensen's directorial. I don't know if it's his debut, but he's directed it. We have Halle Berry playing an MMA fighter in Bruise. She's also directed it. And then we have Francois Ozone's Summer of 85 that's gotten a lot of buzz as an international feature. Summer of 84 was an independent horror movie that was really good, so I expect that to be the direct sequel. Uh, sure. sun, <laughs> Sundance films that are confirmed to be coming to TIFF. We have The Father with Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Coleman, and we also have Shiva Baby, which played at South by Southwest, which I am very, very interested in. I think Rachel Senna is absolutely hilarious. Uh, that's going to be playing at TIFF as well. So unique to TIFF as of now, and again, you know, there may be more, I expect more announcements for both film festival in terms of editions go, just like this morning, One Night in Miami was announced, etc. We have Concrete Cowboy with Idris Elba. We have MLK slash FBI, which is about the surveillance of Martin Luther King by the FBI. It's a documentary there. We got a, a Indian film called The Disciple that's getting a lot of buzz. We have a legal thriller called I Care a Lot, starring Rosamund Pike. She's gonna murder someone. You have uh, just I can't been... never. 
Watching yeah. her in that James Bond movie was terrifying for me. You've been terrified of Rosamund Pike <laughs> after Gone Girl, and things don't change. Like you won't allow yourself nope. to. She you know, is she's, forever entrenched in that role in my mind. She's an actress. She plays Mm-mm. roles. Yeah. Know. No, there's acting and then there's acting. And that wasn't acting. That was real. <laughs> the action horror film Shadow in the Cloud is going to star Chloe Grace Moretz. We have Penguin Bloom, I guess is a drama. It better be a drama with that title. <laughs> Starring Jackie Weaver and Naomi Watts. We have Werner Herzog's new documentary for Apple TV Plus called Fireball, Visitors from Darker Worlds, and the opening night premiere directed by Spike Lee about David Byrne of The Talking Heads, etc. American Utopia will open the festival. David Byrne's getting a bit of a renaissance, too, in this uh, this time period. He was just recently on SNL before this pandemic started. It was a great performance, and I know he collaborated. Oh, I... Some I can't remember it off the top of my head, so that's why I'm talking about it, because it's definitely something I should do on a radio show like this when I don't have all the facts. But I can't remember. He just collaborated with someone, and it was worthwhile. So there's some good info for you. And I think this might be a dumb thing to say or an obvious thing to say. It's not going to be stupider than what I just said, but go ahead. (laughs) Well, I think you need an IP address in Toronto or at least in Canada to be able to buy the virtual screenings, which are probably limited. Because every time I go on the TIFF website, it says... You know, nothing is available to you. It's basically no soup for you. <laughs> I was like, maybe I could buy a ticket for something, a virtual you ticket. You filthy American. <laughs> Can't do anything. But, Mike, uh, we never talked about Telluride getting canceled, Fantastic Fest getting canceled, Palm Springs Festival also got pushed from January to late uh, February. This was not a surprise to us necessarily. Telluride seemed to be that one weekend event. It's a, it's a shame, though, right? Yeah, of course it is. And I, I mean, God bless these people that are in charge of all these major events that are trying to, to scramble and find new dates. I know the L.A. Comic-Con just landed on a date in late December. Uh, I know San Diego Comic-Con had to shut down completely. So it, it, it sucks. I mean, these are the places that have become so entrenched in our pop culture. And this is where we get our first taste of new films and stuff like that. But it also goes back to why we've said so many times this feels like a film year or an Oscars year at least that's going to be dominated by big names because we think that's just going to be the default so we're hopeful and that these film festivals that are going forward there will be some momentum put behind a little known film or a little known filmmaker or a little known actor and they get momentum like it's any other Oscar year and they get their time to shine I'm rooting for it for certain, and I'm curious to see what the New York Film Festival is going to select at the end of the day. New York seems to be in better shape than some other cities out there, at least in the U.S., knock on wood. Mm. We'll see if that lasts or if that holds out and what they can do. Mike, a couple final things to mention. David Rubin was reelected as president of the Academy, so I guess we're happy about that. He's done a nice job steering Uh, the ship. He's done very, very well, I think. We've said a lot of nice and complimentary things, or at least more complimentary things than non-complimentary things that we've said about his term and his tenure thus far. So I think he deserves another term and we'll see uh, what more he can do. Especially, obviously, that museum is going to be a huge thing for the Academy. And then the awards season schedule, which you can find in its entirety on awardswatch.com. That's my go-to for the schedule at large. Uh, A lot of great guys that we really love Mm -hmm. over there. uh, Guys and gals putting out great work. So go check out that schedule. But the DGA Awards announced their new date of Saturday, April 10th. 10th, the Gotham Awards move to the beginning of the award season, January 11th. And the Golden Globes, they synced up their eligibility window with the Oscars. So a lot of these stories were expected, and I'm glad that they were, make, they were able to make them all work. The, my birthday is the day after the Gotham Awards, so if you want to get me something nice, dear listener, you'll know now to send it, January 12th. January 12th. That's your birthday. Mm. Very good. I'm glad you, uh, that's a piping hot take, but I didn't think we'd have hot takes for this section. No, I, I mean, look, the awards, the awards schedule moving is, is expected and the, it's kind of why the Oscars took the lead on it. So I think everything's falling into place and we're actually going to get some semblance of actual normalcy like everyone wants. So I think that's a good thing. And I think it's a good thing that you and I have gotten to a place where we can just make fun of each other for our lousier takes or our sillier ones, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, (laughs) 
That's where we're at right now in this pandemic, I think. But we did it, Mike. We did a news episode. Yay! After much ado and much wait, uh, we're glad we can get this one in. And obviously, I mean, look, it was a huge, huge story. We're going to follow the fallout as always. And like we said, if you're looking for more blockbustery news, we will have MMO Weekly coming to you at some point in the near future. It was just... It was getting so hard and so miserable to keep reporting on everything being canceled and the world being so ugly and dark. Right. So we took a little bit of a respite. But uh, when something huge pops up, we will certainly be on top of it and we will be following the fallout all along. Obviously, we do this for you and we want to hear your input and your take, dear listener. What do you think about the AMC Universal deal as well as any other takes you may have on this episode or anything else we talk about here in the MMO Empire? You can leave us those thoughts, comments, questions, concerns on our social medias. Those are Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook and on Instagram. We are MM and Oscar on Twitter. Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com and on Reddit. And I do want to say I have uh, previewed the hard work that also Mike here and his brother, uh, my former roommate John, have been doing on the MMO.com website. And it is it looks really, really impressive. And especially for someone who I know knows uh, probably a little bit more about computers than I do, but not much more. And also, Mike here, you're doing a great job, buddy. Uh, well, so I just want to give you props. My brother is really helping us out a lot right now. He, he <laughs> did a lot of the hard the heavy lifting yesterday whereas i put a picture on a <laughs> caption and say yay and then i make sure he looks at it and says i did a good job <laughs> but all that is to say we actually have a website in progress for like the third or fourth time but we'll get it there we're getting there we're working on it or at least one of the mics here is i haven't done much of anything on it at all i gotta be honest but uh seamless edit there as always uh if you are <laughs> listening to us on apple podcast if you're still in quarantine letting us kill an hour or so a couple times a week we would really appreciate it if you can leave us a five-star review there that truly helps us out a lot michael what are the words of wisdom and what are uh what's coming next i can't speak anymore this episode's over go go speak go it is wise to live in <laughs> toronto or venice because yes. we can actually watch these newer cooler movies i guess it's also wise to be a subscriber of netflix i don't know if it's wise <laughs> to be involved with amc or universal yet that remains to be seen i'm sure we're going to get scooped in moments you know whenever we put this episode out by new shit you know dropping about these stories but michael like you said what's coming next we have a lot of news stories that have piled up, and I think one of the sad things about not doing MMOW for a while is that we didn't get to cover all the production announcements, all the new movie announcements, all the casting announcements. So we agreed to go heading into this show. We're going to do an entire episode on all of those, and we're going to frame it with our game that we're bringing back. We're still thinking it's going to break out and become basically the <laughs> who wants to be a millionaire of the new millennium. See by Skip. It's happening. It's going to catch fire. We're going to go see by skip with uh, trios of casting, production, movie announcements. We're going to have a lot of fun with that because there's like 40 of them since we last talked on that. We have a special guest, we think, we hope, for Friday slash Saturday show. And uh, that's going to be a fun episode about productions that have gone awry in the past. And that it's a film very sets from politically hell. politically correct way of putting that, yes. So we were really excited about that one. And then uh, next next week, I think, maybe the week after, we'll have another Oscar Olympics. So go back and listen to our first of those. And we'll have James Bond probably for the second or third week of August as well. Keep the content rolling in, guys, when reality sucks. Come listen to these episodes, share some laughs, and watch some movies with us. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make award season year-round without the stuffiness. We will see you all very, very soon. See you.